Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in these current times, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I am Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Mark Willis. Mark is a director at Removals CRM, TrustYourMove.com. Mark, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us on this fine day. Hello there, Scott, and thank you for introducing us. Thank you, Mark, um, for taking the time, of course, to uh, to join us. Um, certainly, as I've said, a very nice day for it. And the purpose um, of this discussion is really to establish your take on leadership, first and foremost. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the current COVID-19 situation, no less, and business leaders having to really chart a course through this very unfamiliar territory. Tell me, for somebody working within your industry, how has it been trying to get through the last uh, few weeks and months? Because I can imagine it's posed a tremendous challenge. Well, I suppose a lot of the thing or the troubles that we've been having in the industry is due to COVID-19 is within our house removals, the terms and conditions of acceptance are actually changing a lot because we have to adhere to a duty of care to our staff. Um, It's a big problem because not only are we working on the inside of homes, but we're also working on the outside with the general public. So so for me and, well, all of the movers, really, it's been quite a struggle. And we've had to network together just to come up with answers um, to move forward. Absolutely right. Um, I can um, imagine there's been a lot of uh, collaboration um, at the moment. Um, everybody's had to really keep the communication channels open in response to uh, this uh, pandemic to really try to innovate and just keep things ticking over. And in terms of the uh, the future, Keith, what do you think um, the, the, the um, effect will be on your industry in the long term? Well, I personally think that a lot of procedures need to be put in place now um, before um Movers do removals. Um, it's obviously keeping all our PPE and making sure it's all clean and making sure we're getting si- our job signed off to say that we haven't been around COVID or anything like that. So it's quite a challenge for us as re- a removals industry to actually move our industry forward in these times. It's, it's quite scary, to be honest. It is quite scary. Hmm. I can certainly see why there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of worry within the uh, the sector. And for business leaders in particular, it's put a real pressure on them, hasn't it? Because there are a lot of employees who will be looking at um, those, um, of course, um, leading them for a lot of reassurance um, at the moment as to what the future holds and that everything is going to be okay. But given the sort of lack of clarity in um, a lot of uh, circles at the moment, it can be quite difficult to try and provide the information that people are looking for to offer that reassurance when in reality, the leaders don't necessarily know that much more than those around them. Yes, that's right. I, be, I believe the way we should um, move forward, uh, I do advise a lot of removals to look on legislation.gov or um, the government website to get advice from the leaders or the MPs just to take their industry forward. There's a lot of movers who actually don't know where to go and they need to sign up to a body just to actually get them help to move their business forward because if they don't, I believe they could... If, you know, potentially be left behind. 
Mm, absolutely. Um, there's a great deal of concern, of course, for the well-being of uh, business at the moment. And indeed, the government itself has uh, really stepped um, up to the plate uh, with regards to that, with the measures that it's introduced, including the coronavirus job retention scheme for starters, the small business loans um, as well. Have you been encouraged by the leadership that they've shown through this, considering that there has been some criticism in some quarters? Yeah, yeah, I have actually. And I believe my staff are on furlough myself. I've put mine on furlough. But there, there is some things what we're coming to the end of where we've sorted out this COVID-19, where I, I do believe measures should be put in place to actually change the furlough, to actually encourage people back to work. Because there's going to be a lot of people who's afraid to get back and, you know, get back onto their job. So, I believe we've got some problems coming ahead. I do believe the government's going to have to try to give people a little push and a little help maybe just to move forward. I think you're spot on there, Mark. I think business really does need a hand um, in the uh, the next step to really make sure that things can start to revert to some form of normality in a reason- at a reasonable pace. We understand that it's not going to be exactly the same as before, of course, and there will be a, a new normal um, ahead of us. Um, in terms of your own sort of leadership style, how do you think that you're going to have to adapt that to meet this new normal that we're going to be facing? Well, like me, what I, because I have a software platform, I have to make adjustments in the platform so people can add terms and conditions, things about COVID-19. And I'll be honest with you, it's been quite a stress for me going forward. But if I can guide the movers the right way and from talking to the right people, I do believe that we can go forward in a positive way to help our industry. I think to start now, to start all these changes now early and researched problems so we can have solutions for them problems, I personally think we will be fine. Um, my business alone, I have researched over 30 days under COVID-19, and I believe I've learned enough about the duty of care to my staff, the HSE, uh, and what's coming ahead. So what I tend to do is I tend to pass down that knowledge to the people what I've learned myself so they can grow with me. Yeah, exactly. It's very much been a learning curve, uh, this whole experience, as much as anything else. And there are positives to be drawn from that, aren't there, in the sense that we have been thrust out of our comfort zones as both leaders and employees. And there will be a great deal of resilience that comes uh, from this and also experience of crisis management. Because really, the experience of setbacks and learning from those setbacks is vital for one's own development, isn't it? We can't really hope to become effective leaders, especially without that uh, going on that journey. No, no, that's right. I mean, one of the biggest problems we've got in our industry at the minute is um, same-day sale and completion. Now, in my mind, with same-day same it shouldn't really be happening in this present moment in time. And I think personally what they need to do with this COVID-19 is force a stop. So same-day sale and completion is not allowed to happen because for, for a remover or a removals association, you haven't got enough time to prepare for that move to keep people safe. Yeah, I think that's all. That's very much going to be um, an issue on the uh, the horizon uh, for sure. And if we do think about the um, future 
now, Mark, based upon the experience that you've had, not just of this crisis, but also your years in business, if you were actually to give some advice to somebody who was about to begin their first day within a specific leadership role, is there any advice that you would give them? Something I've always learned in business, I would say to them, stay off social media. If you're going to lead people, never put nothing out there what's negative. Always, always be positive towards others. Because once you're positive, you'll get that trend and you will grow with people. And the people will teach you as much as you can teach them. So it's a 50-50 thing. It is absolutely right. Um, Surrounding yourself with people who are good at what they do, positive people, is absolutely uh, massive. I believe Nelson Mandela himself once said, in fact, that you should surround yourself with people who are better than you are because as a leader, you're not a lone wolf. You've got to have people around you. You have to delegate. And it's about them nurturing the best from you as their leader as well as also you getting the best out of them, as you've rightly said there. Mm-hmm. It's one of them things. It's something when I, I do believe when I started in business, I, I, I wouldn't lie. I wouldn't have a clue. I wouldn't have a clue. I was I was full of beans. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I can look back now and shake my head at it. But as time's gone on, every day, every day, day it's a learning curve. And I think a true leader, what they actually do is when they find a problem, they've got to solve that problem. Uh, and I think that's how you become that leader. You become the problem solver to save other people thinking about problems, which, you know, in effect, you're giving something back to them. You are. That's exactly uh, meta for certain. And we've talked a little bit about the importance of people there. Um, are there any individuals who you've maybe worked with or looked up to through your career, Mark, who've stuck out as people who've really had a profound influence on you and your leadership style as you've developed? Yeah. Yeah. Believe it or not, I actually believe in a lot of regulation, um, regulation within an industry to make an industry smarter, but at the same time can give the people the leads of what they need. So, the, the people I would say that I've looked up to is um, British Association of Removers. There's certain people, um, William Webb, Steve Howes. All these people have influenced me to, to tell me when to calm down when I don't need to be so passionate. Step back, they say. Take a look. Try to understand the other person's point of view. You know, as I was building Trust Your Move, I actually built up 1,500 people and listened to all their advice. But one of my biggest mistakes was having altercations with them. And they on social media, they would think it was an argument. But me, I was trying to understand and learn. But over the years, as I've came to understand and learn, I've actually maybe learned enough to actually guide the ones below me and because I had all these altercations with the older movers of the generations um, they must have thought that (laughs) just looking back at it now they must have thought who is this guy he's full of beans and and it's how I look at the people below not below me they're on the same level it's how I look at people now that's how I look at the industry now so as they taught me to do it the right thing now I can teach younger movers to the to do the right thing in you know you know as time goes on as time goes and that is what I do is what I enjoy doing 
And I think it's hugely important um, as well, um, teaching people just to, of course, keep their um, passion in their check uh, for sure and be able to take measured decisions because from a leadership point of view, that's um, incredibly uh, vital. And if we do think about what the future holds now, Mark, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme uh, today, um, do give me an idea of what you envision the next 12 months holds for yourself and for uh, the business, Trust Your Move. And also, well, I, I- yeah. Yeah, I do believe that trust removal is going to be fine. Uh, I think I think the removals industry is going to struggle slightly because over the last month since this COVID started, we've had around a seventy percent loss in house sales. So the economy is going to struggle as well. But I think the only way forward that we can change that is put a suspension on stamp duty or something, you know, for mm. homes below a million so the poorer people can actually get something back, you know, to encourage them to sell houses to keep the economy going. I hope mm. that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's something that we do need to uh, see in future um, for certain, uh, Mark, absolutely. And, you know, I think it would actually be fantastic, given how informative this discussion's uh, been today, to actually, when we start to see things emerging in future, see just if those hopes have been borne out and maybe discuss then what is required going forward from that point and look back retrospectively at what we've said uh, today. I think that would actually be incredibly useful, not just for myself, but also from a listener's point of view, for sure. Yeah, no, I'd always love to help and put my point across. I mean, everybody has their own and I believe I listen to the industry to see what they want and it. It's what the industry is asking for. But I'm hoping going forward, you, you know, we can stick together and grow together and create good change together, you know, create positivity. I think that's absolutely critical because there have been some very, very positive messages that have been taken on board during this time. And we can't lose sight of that, particularly those that have brought about this increased sense of national unity, consideration for people's health, well-being, but also what's really required for business and industry to innovate and really move forward from the regulatory point of view, just as much as within businesses themselves. Mark, I have to say, um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the uh, the programme today, for sure. And I think it would be fantastic to, um, again, as I say, um, have you back on in the next year to uh, discuss these matters further, because to be honest, I could talk about it all day. Yeah, no, that's fantastic, Scott. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening. Um, 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 well, before we go and end this, we should thank the NHS and the general community for just listening, for just listening in and doing what they do, doing what they do. Exactly right. And for those people tuning into this, do stay home where you can and do look after yourselves and stay safe because it really does help defend the NHS and make a serious difference in saving lives. Mark, yourself as well, do take care and stay safe going forward. Yeah, you too, Scott. Thank you. That was Mark Willis, director for TrustYourMove.com. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And he did all of that despite being blind from birth, rising to prominence to claim a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair, as well as serving as the MP for his Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was first elevated to the House of Lords five years ago now, in August 2015, where he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett himself. That's coming up just next. 
Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff, and of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system um, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticize the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.